Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Subspace Communiques Life After Trek. I'm your host, Chris, or Captain Pike, uh, and as always with me is my lovely co-host, Charity. A.K.A. Crewman Becky. Hi, hi. Yeah, we uh, took a bit of a break off. Um, we were having a hard time kind of kind of putting together some loose ends to get a couple stars, but we're back with a vengeance because tonight we have a very hey. special guest. Yeah, we're super stoked uh, to talk to John Billingsley, Dr. Flox from Enterprise. Um, John's actually going to be at an upcoming convention, Starbase Indy, which we covered last year. And unfortunately, we can't make it back there this year because of some scheduling conflicts. Uh, but the fine folks at Starbase Indy were lovely enough to get us an interview with John uh, before the convention. Uh, and if you're in Indianapolis, be sure to head out to Starbase Indy. It's at the Indianapolis Marriott East. And I believe that's December 9th through the 11th. So be or sure anywhere to, even close to yeah, Indianapolis. If you're because, in yeah. Mars, yeah. <laughs> if you can be in Mars, I guess that would be on Mars. On, on Mars, yes. I digress. Anyway, so we had a fantastic time talking to John. He's super gracious and a very interesting guy. Talked about some of his upcoming projects, uh, some of his past projects, and of course, uh, Star Trek. So stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We're really excited about tonight's special guest. Uh, he's been in several TV shows from True Blood to Scrubs, 90210 to Cold Case, where he was the only killer that got away with murder, and most recently the USA Network Suits. Uh, he's also been in several feature films and stage productions, but to you Trek fans, he'll always be Dr. Flox. Uh, we'd like to give a huge Life After Trek welcome to John Billingsley. Uh, hey John, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Yeah, and it's super cool that you're able to join us. And we'd like to give a, a big thanks to the folks at Starbase Indy, Kim Huff and the folks at Starbase Indy for setting this up. Uh, John's going to be there December 9th through the 11th. Uh, and Starbase Indy is actually held at the Indianapolis Marriott East in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, but John's going to be there uh, with, actually, and I'll cut this part out, but how do you pronounce your wife's last name? My wife's last name is Friederici, like fried and greasy. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll keep that in. That's good. Oh, keep that in. That's how she introduced herself to me. In fact, she's looking. She's sitting on the sofa now, giving me a semi-baleful stare. <laughs> That's good stuff. Yes. In fact, she will be coming with me to Indianapolis, which I think is the probably the main thing I would like to say. Um, and she is a wonder and a terror, at both in her own right. And that provoked another semi-baleful stare. Um, <laughs> We actually will do our little dog and pony show together. She plays, uh-oh, she's coming to rest the phone for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she plays General Beckman on Chuck, for those of y'all who are Chuck fans. And she has a long and buried career herself. Uh, sorted, she says. <laughs> long and sorted career. Oh, that's great. Um, the only thing I also would add to your introduction is I didn't end up getting away with it on Cold Case. They caught up to me in a subsequent episode. Oh. I know. <laughs> that was hand, great, that, that, that was perfect. That was like the, the perfect introduction. I mean, to be the only guy to get away with murder. Oh. I know. Almost. <laughs> Almost. And when I, was reading, when I was reading that script, I thought, you know, I was getting down to the last four or five pages. I thought, I think I'm going to get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sure and also at Starbase India, I wanted to finish that up. Tony Todd, uh, which was on a previous episode of Life After Track, uh, Jay Akavone, Dean Hagland, uh, David Reddick, who does a lot of the uh, Roddenberry 
uh, Jean's Journal, a couple other cartoons, uh, comic strips for them, which I believe are actually going to full-blown uh, animation. At least that's the last that we heard. Uh, and Deborah Downey. And we were actually there at Starbase Indy last year, and we had a fantastic time. Um, so if you guys are in the area, or if you're not, you just want to come out and see a fantastic fan-run convention, uh, Starbase Indy is, is definitely worth 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 your time. It's, it's a good, good convention. We totally had a blast. worth it. Yeah, so. I'm looking forward to it. I know Tony and Dean. I was in a movie with Tony and a episode of X-Files with Dean long ago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we actually wanted to talk about uh, that movie with Tony a little bit later. Because uh, that's uh, yeah, we, that was... he was pretty excited about that. Maybe we'll get into that in just a second. All right. Um, yeah, you know, it looks like your first film credit was um, 1988. Did you do any acting before then, like maybe stage, or how did you get into acting? Oh yeah, I, I was uh, an acting major in college. I studied acting in in elementary school, junior high school, high school. I was a stage actor primarily from 1982 when I graduated high school, and I moved to Seattle until. I moved down to Los Angeles in 95. So although I have a few film and TV credits predating 95, they were all based on work I did in Seattle, and Seattle was hardly a, a mecca for film and TV. I'm going to ask my wife, hey, Bonnie, would you mind taking uh, Kitty downstairs? <laughs> because he will become a quite vocal part of this interview. If he's... We're a, a pet-friendly show. So. <laughs> yeah. Go on, yes, but he has the loudest meow, and in Christendom. Go on. Bye. Bye, Solly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, yes, I did have a few film and TV credits when I moved to Los Angeles in 95, but I was primarily a theater actor. I had a theater company that was devoted to adapting fiction for the stage. Oh, cool. I taught acting, and I did a lot of regional work. And then, you know, it's hard to make a living in the theater. I was 35. My first marriage ended. It seemed as if the stars were in conjunction, so I thought it was time to try the uh, film and TV biz and moved down in 95 and started working pretty consistently in uh, early 97. Yeah, and you actually have, uh, we, we were talking a, a few minutes ago, you have a couple upcoming projects. Uh, one that really kind of caught our eye, it was Trade of Innocence. Uh, pretty heavy story. You could probably give a much better explanation than the synopsis we pulled off of uh, IMDb, but you're uh, with Mira, Mira Sorvino and uh, Dermot Mulroney. Uh, in that film. It's a movie about the, and this is a grim subject indeed, it's a movie about the uh, trafficking in underage children, the sex trafficking in uh, underage children. It takes place in Cambodia. Um, and uh, I don't think it wants to just wag the finger at Cambodia. I, I, it's a global problem. Um, for those who know me and are familiar with my work, you can pretty much guess what part I play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a rueful chuckle suggests that I, that I am a villain. Surprise, surprise, I'm a child molester. Um, and Mira and Dermot are the uh, the couple who are investigating, for lack of a better word, the, uh, the child molestation industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very powerful movie, as always, you know, shot on a fairly low budget. That's what the reality is these days. Uh, Hollywood makes a considerably smaller number of mainstream, big-budget pictures than they used to. There's a lot more indie work, low-budget. I think this was a $5 million budget. And you never know, as an actor, when you're in these movies, how they're going to turn out. It was certainly fun to do. I'm sure they had a bit of a difficult time editing it down to feature length. They wrote a longer movie. 
um, and filmed a longer movie than they can afford to actually edit and distribute. It's a complicated business, but it's harder to distribute a longer movie. It's simply the economics of the industry require people to make 90-minute films, uh, more than two-hour-plus films. So it'll be a challenge for them. I'll be curious to see it. It's it's actually interesting that you say that uh, that Hollywood's less or more reluctant to make larger films. It's more of an indie scene now is what I'm trying to say. But does that actually open it up to where more interesting scripts are being made? Well, I, w- I would like to say yes, but to be honest with you, what what's happened, and it's... Uh, Forgive me and stop me if this gets boring because it's sort of inside baseball talk, but the studios used to have indie film arms, Paramount Vantage, Fox Searchlight, and what essentially they did was they coupled some private money with studio money to make what were called indie films, but which were essentially films that had a sort of a studio imprimatur. And those were adult films made for anywhere between 10 and $30 million, which in Hollywood terms is kind of chump change. But as uh, the recession hit and as Hollywood and in large part the multinational corporations that own Hollywood these days looked at their bottom line, they thought, you know, it really makes more sense for us to make fewer movies. There'll be bigger budget movies, but there'll be so-called tentpole movies. Mm. Batman, Spider-Man, etc., 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 etc. So we've we've probably now seen a lot of those um, in the arms of the studios disappear, and there are fewer big-budget movies, too. The Now, what, what are being made, these so-called indie movies, it really is almost entirely private financing. And as you can imagine, in this economy, it's tough to get private financing. Sure. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's always a crapshoot, but it's it wasn't as much of a crapshoot when you had the studio behind you, because a private financier would say, well... The studio distribution process, the studio promotional department, it will definitely go into certain cinemas. I've got a much better shot at making my buck back. When a private financier is considering putting money into an indie film without any of those props, they're going to be a hell of a lot more reluctant. And so consequently, the filmmakers are trying to make really low-budget movies, like $1,500,000, $250,000 movies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the scripts can be interesting, but when you have to make a movie that cheaply, you have to be extremely tight in terms of what you can do. Scripts go through the, the, the meat grinder. Well, we can't do this, we can't do that, we'll never get funding for this, we can't have scenes like this, this costs too much, we can't have this many extras, we can't have car chases, la, 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 la. So perversely, I think what has happened is that what you, do, what you get now are a lot of movies that are written to uh, a kind of a formula, low-grade, Z-grade horror movies that know that the, the, the director and producer know will get distribution and will return their money. Then they will be able to turn around and say to the next guys, hey, see, we made money on this movie. Give us money for this next one. Mm. That's the model that's really driving Hollywood. So frankly, what I see... And, you know, of course, at my level, I'm not a big name. But what I see are a lot of pretty schlocky scripts Mm. crossing the threshold that don't deserve to be made at all. Um, And, I, I, you know, I'm still making some low-budget indie films, and the four I did most recently I think are worthy scripts. I wouldn't have done them if they weren't. Mm -hmm. But I, I can tell you that there are a number of them I turned down because, you know, I just don't want to be associated with them. Sure. Yeah. So not to be 
Yeah, I mean, not to be grim, but it is a very difficult. It is a very difficult time in Hollywood. The business model is is really screwy right now. I used to be able to talk to people who moved down here and be considerably more optimistic about, yeah, you want to make it in Hollywood. You want to, you know, get a career going as an actor, director, what have you. There are levers you can pull. It's, it's doable. It's hard, but it's doable. I find myself being considerably more pessimistic with people these days when they move down here and want to know how to get started. Mm-hmm. I wish that were not so, but you know that's it's this this industry is going through all the same repercussions that the newspaper industry and the music industry are going through because a lot of the product now is available for free online. Right. Oh, right. And, you know when when people who make things, people who sing songs, people who attempt to make the career in journalism, actors, directors, when the product is given away for nothing, mm-hmm. it, you know, <laughs> I mean, it is a yeah. form of legalized theft. Totally. You know, for instance, and stop me again because I'm going on and I'm kind of No, it's totally interesting. It, you know, one of the things in the television industry, for actors, a lot of the way we make our living is through residuals. And one of the big residual checks we used to get were prime time residuals when a show would air in prime time and then it would repeat. You'd get a nice residual check. Well, now, because of Hulu, which is owned by one of the studios, um, those repeats are available for nothing. Mm. Oh, wow. For people who go online. So they don't show prime time reruns anymore, they show reality shows. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. That's it's so, extremely interesting. You know, so a big check is gone, and the agencies to take ten percent of that check. So a lot of agencies have lost a lot of their income. So a lot of agencies have folded too. Wow. It's really interesting because we, you know, being out here, we never hear about that stuff. That's that's very interesting to hear how that's treating the uh, actors and the professionals in the industry. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting business insofar as you know. I mean, what what one. What one thinks about, or what one hears about, of course, you you know, you hear about the 20 million salaries for the stars, but 85%, and I say this having done very well myself, so I don't say this in any way to suggest, you know, oh, boo-hoo for me, I, I'm very lucky, but 85% of the actors in SAG make under $15,000 a year. Wow, I had no wow. idea. Yeah, and, you know, for the most part, of that percentage, that $15,000 a year, most of that money comes in from residuals. So as a residual... Hmm pool begins to dry up a little bit, you're going to see an even greater proportion of folks, you know, essentially being driven out of the business entirely. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, why the, the, that's why the, the uh, Writers Guild actually uh, had the strike a couple of years yeah. back. Has there been any talk of a Actors Guild uh, strike for the same... Well, again, it's extremely complicated, but the guilds line up in a, in, in a you know, w- w- the Writers Guild contract usually um, expires first, then the Directors Guild contract expires, then AFTRA and SAG, and it's two separate unions, and now AFTRA has actually taken a lot of the work that SAG used to cover. The big push right now is for AFTRA and SAG to merge, which is going to be tricky because they have separate pension and separate health care plans that would have to be merged. But what happens every time, every few years when the contracts come up for renewal is the writers, because their contract comes up first and a lot of the issues are the same, will usually be the guild that, you know, has to, because they're first out of the shotgun, um, put the job action forward. And whatever settlement is reached, that usually becomes the template that that is then expected the you know the the directors and the and the actors have to follow. 
and um, you know, I think the writers have done a, did a fair job at doing the best they could. But in a recessionary climate and faced with you know, multinational corporations who, frankly, could afford to weather a long strike mm-hmm. a hell of a lot more easily than the Writers Guild could. Um, it, you know, there was, it was no contest. I mean, it's a David and Goliath story, unfortunately. And in the real world, Goliath usually does win. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Do you guys ever see any residuals from the online sources, like Hulu and, and those? You get, no, you get a tiny, that was one of the issues. In fact, that was the major issue that provoked the strike was it's a, it's a complicated economic formula that determines how much actors get paid on the basis of uh, DVDs, uh, foreign showings, syndication, primetime reruns, because this was essentially a new market, what the producers' guild you know, the, the studios essentially turned around and said, well, we don't know if we can figure out a way to monetize this. So we don't want to put a formula in place that's going to give you guys uh, money that we don't know that we can even make ourselves. To which the artist said, well, but figure out a fair formula. If the money comes in, yeah. you'll be getting a fair percentage. If the money doesn't come in, you're, you're not out anything. Totally. And this was the same argument that was made years back when DVDs were first being introduced. And the studio said at the time, well, we don't know if we're going to make any money on DVDs. But we tell you what, we will wait, and if DVDs become profitable, we'll make it up to you then. Well, they never did. Mm. Oh, wow, no kidding. So, you know, once burned, twice shot. Sure, totally. In fact, that's that's been the story in in all of the labor actions down the years in Hollywood, whenever there's been a, a push on the part of the unions to try and say, hey, this is a new source of revenue, syndication. Syndication was a new source of revenue some years back. Cable television, a new source of revenue. We were always told, all of the unions were told, well, we, the studios, don't know whether or not this is going to be lucrative. So let's figure out a tiny little portion we can give you now, and then we'll see, and we'll make it up to you later. And, in, in, you know, it's a tough fight. You, it's hard to claw back. Yeah. Or to claw your way back to the negotiating table and say, hey, let's remember when we talked about back when with cable. Well, can we now talk about getting some of that money back? So anyway, unfortunately, we just didn't have the bargaining clout. Right. That's actually pretty interesting. Another thought that uh, that came to my mind. I know that you know Star Trek has always had a huge convention following. Stars have always gone to conventions. It's something that uh, the Star Trek community were able to reach out to you guys. You guys are able to reach out to us. But we've been seeing a lot, uh, a lot more like big line actors going to uh, media conventions. I, I call them or, or sci-fi conventions or stuff, comic stu- cons, comic whatever, cons yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that's why, because they aren't seeing as much uh, for residuals, and they're able to make up some of that. Um, at well, the, the biggest the biggest reason is because studios have discovered that you know I mean look at what studios are producing: Batman, Thor. You know, I mean it's comic book and right, sci-fi right. movies. Mm-hmm. So now actors have it in their contracts that they will help promote these these movies. So they are contractually obligated to attend. No kidding. Yeah, and it also makes sense. I mean, you know, their vested interest is in seeing a movie make money to the extent that they're going to get another $15, $20 million payroll. It's going to be on the basis of how did your last movie do? How did mm-hmm. the movie before that do? Mm-hmm. So they will always participate in mar- in a marketing push. And to the extent that so many movies these days are made for a younger audience and they are more sci-fi, fantasy-oriented than the you know movies of, of 20 or 30 years ago, these kinds of 
events have proliferated. I mean, the reason Comic-Con has become so huge is because the studios discovered the value of the Comic-Con audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the fans love it. The fans love a chance to get to see everybody that they get to see on the big screen. So Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, you talk to... You talk to a lot of fans. I certainly, you know, have had a chance to talk to fans from all sorts of different walks of life. And, and you hear a lot of different things because some people say, well, it's become so big and it's become such an institution and there's now 100,000 people coming and you can't get in oh, yeah. to a lot of the events and, and you can't breathe for the, for the crowds right. that it's lost a lot of its appeal for some people. I imagine, yeah. Uh, you know, other folks are thrilled at the idea of being able to see uh, uh, Joss Whedon and, uh, you know, I mean, you name it, anybody now associated with any kind of, of, of fantasy, sci-fi, et cetera, et cetera, film sort of, you know, hits the stations of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are a little thrilled at that. That's what's good about the fan-run conventions. Exactly, is that they're a, a lot smaller, like the indie one you're going to be at soon, um, is that they are a lot smaller and the fans get a chance to, you know, come up and talk to you more than they would at a, at a really yeah, crowded yeah. place. Yeah, no, and they're, they're not, obviously, they're not, they're not geared for, you know, attracting Leonardo DiCaprio's of the world. They're, they're, they're geared for, for attracting we, we sort of B-level character guys, you know, and God bless them, because <laughs> <laughs> we well, B-level we character it. guys got to eat, too. Sure, that's the cool thing, though, because we've talked to, talked to a few um, former cast and crew of, uh, of, different, of the various Star Trek series. Like, for instance, we talked to Aaron Eisenberg from DS9. And we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't know that Aaron wasn't a regular on DS9. Of course, us seeing him and seeing his names in the credits, we always thought that he was. But of course, when we said that, he's like, no, 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 I wasn't a regular. But that's the crazy thing about uh, being on the other side of the screen. Us as fans, you guys coming to save something like Starbase Indy. Um, that's that's a huge thing. You may say that, you know, okay, I'm I'm just a, a you know whatever, however you described yourself, a B list actor, whatever. To us, it's not yeah, that not way. So, yeah. Oh no, I, I know, and and that's and that's uh, you know that's a it's a wonderful thing because <laughs> there are days in Hollywood when one feels about as as small as an ant. So it's it's sure. nice to kind of be reminded that there is an audience, and the audience actually knows and appreciates your work. I mean, and believe me, it is a wonderful joy. I think I can speak for almost all actors when we are are stopped or recognized or thanked. Or appreciated because in the in the grind here, you don't get a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you know, it's it's it, 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 you feel much more like a disposable commodity. You know, you audition next, 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 and it's uh, it, it can it can take it it can take it out of you. And I say that as somebody who's very thick-skinned about it because sure. I've been doing this for thirty years. But you know, that's. That's what knocks a lot of people out of this business is 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 feeling like uh, you know a very very small pebble in a very large ocean. Mm-hmm. And we can officially say, not that we haven't enjoyed every other um, guest that we've had on our, our our podcast, but you're our first series regular, and we're super stoked to have you here. Oh, so, oh well, that's nice to hear. Totally. Yeah, absolutely thrilled to have you. You know, it, uh, we actually wanted it feels to... like long ago and far away. <laughs> oh, I know. And cut way too short, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, we, uh, we, we loved Enterprise. We'll, we'll get to that uh, in just a minute. We've got a few questions about that. Another movie we wanted to, another one of your upcoming projects we wanted to talk to you about was Seronia. Uh, it sounded a, like an interesting synopsis, us being from Orange County, Los Angeles area, and moving to Austin. Uh, oh. That's kind of the synopsis for Seronia. 
right? It was yeah. a, a singer-songwriter beat up by L.A. and moving to Saronia, Texas. Yeah, exactly. And the gentleman, um, and it's been a while now because I think I did that movie a couple of years ago. It's been a while, so I'm going to forget the gentleman's name, but it was loosely based on his real story. Oh, okay. He, he played himself, um, obviously a heavily, heavily fictionalized account of his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely gentleman, I thought, and, um, and, and quite a sweet film. I mean, I, I quite liked that script. I had a relatively small part. I played a somewhat um, addled uh, short order cook in the restaurant where he ends up working, um, and I was only on the movie for golly less than a week, I think. But I thought it was a very dear group of people, and I I uh, I have high hopes for that one if it can find if it can find a, a, its niche. I I think it had um, a very sweet spirit and a very nice story to tell. And where was that shot? Did you say? It was shot in the town that Saronia was essentially um, uh, standing in for, um, gotcha. Waco. Okay. Oh, oh no that's kidding. just yeah, up the road, road from, yeah. up the road, down the road something. <laughs> from yeah. Austin. So yeah. that's cool. So it, I guess Saronia is not an actual place. There's so many. Texas is so gigantic. So yeah. No, I know. No, it, it, the, the, his, uh, it, it's, uh, it's about Waco. It's about oh. his oh, return, to, return to Waco. Oh, that's cool awesome. That? <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, and it's just, it's actually it was a lot of fun. I just you know I'd be a I haven't spent a lot of time in Texas. I have some friends in Austin. I visited there, and uh, I've shot a few things in Dallas, but uh, I haven't really penetrated much to the to the so-called heartland. So it was yeah. nice to actually have a week in Waco. Very cool, very cool. And you said that was filmed a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, it all blurs together, you know. But I think let's see when was that? I'm pretty sure it definitely wasn't eleven. It must. I think it was spring of 2010 so mm-hmm. it'll, be, it'll be two years probably february maybe and do you have a, a status update for for that i don't you know it's such a it's funny with the indie films especially you could do something and it it's gone for years and then it appears maybe because one of the actors in it suddenly got hot and now a distributor is willing to buy it mm. um there's so many variables and a lot of what happens in this business, because it's very difficult to get an indie film onto a, into a, a motion picture, and, and again, I, don't, I won't get too far into this, but you know, in most of the screens available in the country, the motion picture screens, the studios essentially buy them up. One of the things that's changed over the course of the last umpteen years is that by, by, by contract, um, if a big fancy pants movie is going to come out, say Paranormal Activity 3, the uh, distributors um, have a contract with the uh, uh, motion picture, the, the theaters, and it will be shown on on thousands of screens across the country, because a lot of what has happened in the movie industry is that the corporations have realized that if you publicize it well and you have a clever promotional marketing campaign, as long as you get a great turnout on opening weekend and you have it in enough theaters, you'll make your money back. So it doesn't really have to be good. It just has, you know, <laughs> it just has to, it, huh? yeah, it just has to be available and promoted aggressively. Wow. And that, I guess that's why we're seeing Paranormal Activity 27. So. Yeah, but it also is why there are fewer screens available. So when you're making oh, an indie yeah. film, you kind of have to start by saying, okay, well, it's, it, there's a snowball chance in hell this is ever going to go into a movie theater. So how do I get my money back? What's a distributor going to buy it for? Cable television, selling it abroad, um, 
I mean, those are the two main marketplaces. This is not the kind of movie, Cerrone, that's likely to be sold abroad. Mm. It doesn't have any names. It's a very American story. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe somebody will buy it thinking it can go to cable, but there's a good likelihood that it will be what they call a festival movie, i.e. they will try and get it into as many prestigious film festivals as they can with hopes that word of mouth will be strong enough to attract somebody who wants to buy it and attach it to that previously mentioned um, studio small film distribution arm. That used to be the model. You know, you take something to Sundance, a lot of people come and see it. Paramount Vantage says, hey, we like this movie, we'll buy it. Nowadays, because there aren't that many of these these studio small film arms, that's becoming a considerably less, you know, easily accessed model. So mm, it's a tough, it's, it's, it's tougher. You know? And there are a lot of people making indie films. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. seems like every every town has a film festival. Austin just had theirs uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago, um, and they pop up all over the place. And it's kind of a racket, to be honest with you, because you know the way it works. It's a little bit like you know, it, it, if a director can get a resume in which he's he's shown his film at umpteen film festival and he's won you know half a dozen prizes. It might mean that his next film, he'll have a better chance of getting distribution because look, look at what I did on the festival circuit. Mm. But the reality is, is that for, with the exception of Sundance, Toronto, you know, a handful of others, most of those film festivals, no one really pays attention to. Sure, yeah. you're not like you're not likely to get a film picked up for distribution on the basis of being at the Dubuque Film Festival. <laughs> totally. On the other, on the other hand, the Dubuque Film Festival, the way they work is they have you know an admission fee. You know, and, and so if you're going to submit your film, it's going to cost you to even submit it. So the film festival tries to figure out a way to kind of, you know, in an ideal world, make a profit right. from running their film festival. And it's, it's, it's a funny market, you know. <laughs> and all this is super interesting, too, because this is the kind of stuff, even though we've kind of gone down a couple of rabbit trails, they're great rabbit trails. This is the kind of stuff we totally dig on the oh, show. Yeah. And our, our fans uh, love inside baseball stuff, whether it be Star Trek or just... You know Hollywood in general, the movie business in general. So this is this it's is a wacky, it's a wacky biz. Like all, you know, like all biz. Like that old gag about you know you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Ain't <laughs> uh, that the truth? An interesting, yeah. Or the, the sausage McRib, in our right? business is like going evolved. <laughs> so I, I hope Seronia does well because I thought those people were great and I, I thought it was a lovely film. Awesome. Uh, you, we saw another one that you have listed, uh, Redline. Is that has that been filmed yet, or are you guys still working yeah, on it? Yeah, Redline has been filmed, and while I thought the director was a, was did a great job, my my suspicion is that given the nature of what it was, it's sort of a thriller, a ninety minute thrill, very much in the mode of the old B films, um, mm. the the of the fifties, um, low budget, one set. It's a, a a bombing takes place, a terrorist bombing takes place on a subway car, mm-hmm. and uh, the survivors after the dust and the smoke clears uh, realize that there is uh, one more bomb that has yet to explode, and they slowly come to realize that there's a good likelihood that the bomber is one of them. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, and it, it, it has its virtues, but my feeling is, my suspicion is that it was rushed into production before all of the script problems were dealt with. And I, I think because it had a, uh, it, it was uber low budget, 
I would I would be surprised if it um, it didn't have any names. I would be surprised if it sees the light of day. Now, what happens with stuff like that? Um, does it does it go to DVD? Um, does, does it well, just sit on a shelf? Just, yeah, right. It's you know the likelihood is it sits on a shelf. Um, the Man from Earth is an instance of of a movie uh, that. You know, it was a fairly innovative and I thought clever way to sort of quasi self distribute. He got distribution, but um, the Man from Earth, which I think you wanted to talk about, that has Tony Todd in it, sure. um, it, found its audience as much as anything through bootleg copies and, um, uh, <laughs> ironically, um, internet showings, which didn't return a penny to the gentleman who made the movie, but it did. It did spread word of mouth, and in the long run, it may have helped the distributors be able to get it into some stores or get it into other hands. But for the most part, a movie when you you know you tr- you take it out and you try and see if you can find a distributor, and if it doesn't have a name and it doesn't have great production values, unless it's a, a really clever script or there's something exceptional about it, or it's just in a genre that just, you know, can't help but make money. I mean, you know, naked women and a lot of blood can't help but make money. Um, and that's how the sausage is made. Y- right. You know, but but otherwise, and there are no naked women in this movie, and there's not, mm, there's not enough blood. For the hard-head that guy. I, I suspect this is going to have a hard time seeing the light of day. And you know that's sometimes what happens is that is that you, you if you're the director or the producer, you start lowering your price. You finally end up almost giving it to a distributor, and 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 the distributor is essentially saying, okay, what I will do is I will give you a penny on the dollar every time I'm able to, wow. you know, to to sell it to a market. And from the distributor's point of view, it's like, well, that's a you know, that's a no loser. I, I you know, I, I can I can keep this on my list every time I have a meeting with a potential buyer, be it a, a video store or a cable station or you know, foreign sellers or whatever, foreign buyers. Mm-hmm. You'll say, oh, and I've also got this. You might want to take a look at it's, a, and then they'll try and sell it. This is you know, it's an interesting little thriller. La la la. This guy from Star Trek was in it, and you know, la 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 la. <laughs> and if they buy it. They'll they'll pay very little for it. Maybe it'll be a package deal. We'll take you know fifteen movies, and you can throw that one in. And the distributor will have made a little bit of money, and the director will get an even tinier, tinier bit of money. But it won't have cost the distributor anything. Wow. So you know, some movies, some movies sort of kind of see the light of day. Right. But you know, I mean, it, it, it's the weirdest thing. Sometimes late at night, four in the morning, you know, you see something and you go, huh. I had no idea that that ever got distributed. <laughs> and and there it is on Showtime, 4 o'clock, Sunday morning. What am I even doing up right now? I just couldn't sleep. And it's a shame, too, because I've got kind of a soapbox I get on about reality TV and how it's killing, um, you know, art in television um, and uh, good drama, uh, good, you know. We're seeing a little bit more sci-fi now, which is nice. Um, not necessarily good sci-fi, um, but well, I'm gonna, I'll, be, I'll be devil's I'll be devil's advocate about that. I mean, I I hate reality programming too. I think it's voyeuristic and obscene. But you have to weigh that against cable television. I mean, when you look at you know Game of Thrones as a for instance, when you look at um, you know Showtime, HBO, TNT, USA, uh, AMC. I mean, compare that to I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, 
you know, up until the really the nineties. I mean, you had three networks. True. There's much mm. more. There's much more good product on these days. I mean, you look at. Uh, golly, I could go on and on all the great shows that I don't have time for. Almost everything I think on HBO I think is terrific. I like the fact that it's adult material, that it, they don't have to censor themselves. I mean, I think the, the pay TV and cable model has, has actually, you know, as a, as a viewer, as somebody who's interested in intelligent programming, I think it's dramatically altered the landscape to the better. Yeah, and you've got a good point there. When I was When I was saying that in my mind, I often you know, just think of the networks and that's pretty much the, the, the garbage that they spew out the main three or main four networks. But you're right. Cause we're, we're huge walking dead fans. I mean, that's AMC yeah, or, well, exactly. or, or mad men or leverage, which you were on, which is yeah. a great show. So yeah, you've got an yeah. excellent point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because then the networks have seen their market share plummet in large part because they haven't figured out a way to respond to the cable network's ability to show more adult, more sophisticated programming. I mean, they still are tied by FCC regulations to a little bit more of a, a straight-laced sense of content. I think CBS has figured it out. Go for an older audience, an older demographic mm, yeah. that is not that interested in, in edgy material. I mean, you know, just a little bit of an edge, but still the procedurals are basically you know, a, a variant on the cop shows that have been on television for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually waiting for the, the return of the, the private investigator uh, show like the Rockford Files. I'm on a giant Rockford Files kick. Not to go like on a. Complete, uh, well, you know they uh, tried. They tried to bring that back two years ago. I had Did no they idea. Really? I, yeah, I wow. auditioned. In fact, Dermot uh, Dylan McDermott was Rockford. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, there it, you go. Uh, it by, yeah. It by, I auditioned for it for the uh, the one of the for the pilot and uh, and I, I I thought no no you can't you can't go home again. <laughs> yeah, I could see. Uh, did you did you audition for Rockford or was another another part? Oh, you're too sweet, Rockford. <laughs> yeah, right. In a parallel universe, I would have thought I'd have been better auditioning for the Stuart Margolin part if you were. Oh yeah, Angel, company. absolutely. Yeah, 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 that would have been fantastic. But no, I, I, been good, I auditioned. Yeah. I auditioned in the pilot for that. That uh, you know, there's always that hapless schnook that he sort of ends up helping along the way. Sure, that was the part I was up for. But you can't fill James Garner's oh, shoes, yeah. and, and and it it did not do well. I mean, it never made it out of the, you know, they make about 120 or so pilots. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know how much you know about how pilot season works, but they'll see, they'll be, they'll be pitched, God, anywhere from, from three to 600 scripts. And out of that, they will choose to make about 100, 125. And out of 125, they will pick up, 20 new series and then out of 20 new series maybe five will survive to the next season so you know it's it's <laughs> it's a it's talk about threading the needle yeah no kidding it's, you know um and there are many well i think there's been hawaii Five O did well yeah last yeah. year but generally speaking, I think that they are maybe realizing that just, you know, look at Charlie's Angels this year and uh, look at uh, the Bionic Woman and, uh, oh gosh, the Rockford Files didn't even make it out of pilot. There are several Wonder Woman didn't make it out of pilot. Uh, I think they're realizing that, you know, this idea that let's just go back and make an old series and catch lightning in the bottle a second time is perhaps really not such a smart idea. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and like you said, sometimes it works, sometimes it uh it doesn't, but yeah, it, it's 
to me, I'd like to see much more original stuff coming out for sure. And, you know, actually speaking of, of the man from earth kind of, you know, rolling back a minute or so here, Tony was really excited about that movie and, and wanted to talk about it. It was something he was very proud of. Now, how did you get involved uh, with that production? Uh, the gentleman who directed it uh, called me, and I think on that script it was pretty much just offers to everybody. Um, and he, I think he was, was, I don't know if he was a Star Trek fan per se, but he was aware of my work primarily from Star Trek, and he was you know, wisely attempting to find people who had some uh, genre background since this would be a movie that would appeal first and foremost to genre fans. Mm-hmm. And he had a friendship with Jerome Bixby's kid, and uh, his first name is escaping me, and uh, was shown this script, which Jerome Bixby had worked on, on and off, up until his death. Um, and for those of y'all who might be listening, Jerome Bixby is really kind of, I think, one of the great masters of the sci-fi short form wrote most famously to my mind the great short story it's a good life which Mm -hmm. was dramatized on the old twilight zone about the little boy with extraordinary (laughs) powers who has transported either the world or his town out of the world um, (laughs) i love that frightening yeah Yeah, it's a great story um he wrote several of the great classic uh, original enterprise original star trek uh episodes in any case, so he put together, this is a director, Richard Shankman, put together this group of folks. And um, I, I think, I, I'm not sure that it's funny that Tony says this, because I think at the time we were all a little dubious because this was a movie made for, you know, I think $18 for the most part. <laughs> we, all to, we all had to bring our own lunch. Um, <laughs> and it was shot over the arc of God. I don't know. I think we were there for, we, I mean, there were days we were shooting like 11 or 12 pages a day, which oh, is unheard wow. of. Wow. And the gentleman who played... Um, I won't spoil it, but the gentleman who played the hero, mm-hmm. who, if anybody sees the movie, uh, will find out, talks a lot. Right. Uh, I mean, he had, you know, his, his eyes were bleeding trying to memorize the lines. Um, but it was, I thought, a quite kind of a lovely conceit, you know, very much the old school, let's sit around a fire and hear an interesting yarn. Um, and it was all shot in one house. It was a lovely group of folks. We all got along very well. And, um, and I, I was, I was, uh, it's always hard if you're in the industry to watch movies that are made for $5 because you sort of, you know, you can't help but go, Oh, geez, I wish the sound was better. Oh gosh, I wish I had another <laughs> take. Oh, why didn't they get another angle on that shot? Oh my God, look at that. That doesn't edit well. You see the seams. I mean, the same way I imagine if you're a carpenter, you know, Somebody could love the house, but you look at the house and you go, these boards are not joined. Well, it wasn't caulked. Well, la, 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 la. <laughs> so it's hard for me sometimes to talk about low-budget films I've been in without kind of going, hey, yeah, yeah, good, but... <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story, and I think that's probably what Tony was so uh, so yeah. excited about. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, it's about the difference between spirituality and religiosity, and I appreciated the distinction the writer was drawing i thought it had a lot uh, a lot of interesting things to say yeah we actually uh, it's kind of funny within the last couple of years um we started watching stargate sg1 and in fact we watched the full 10 seasons in a matter of like five or six months on dvd um wow. we were having yeah we were having the house work done so we didn't have much to do uh, i understand we're watching <laughs> the full 14 seasons of er right now oh wow <laughs> Yeah, it's perfect for when somebody's downstairs, you know, digging up your floor. You can sit upstairs and 
uh, watch whatever. But we actually ran across a little little episode called The Other Guys um, yeah. in season six, I believe, uh, that you were in. And you were also with uh, Paul McKenna, uh, who's another favorite of ours from the Red Green Show. I don't know if anybody Pat- out there. What's Patrick that? Mc- Patrick McKenna. Patrick. Okay. Let me, let me redo that with Patrick McKenna <laughs> from the Red Green Show. Um, I actually pulled that. And from you might him. even want to check that because I can't remember. Is it McKenna or McKinnon? You know, I pulled it from Wikipedia, so who knows? Okay. I thought, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. A lovely guy. I, yeah, I well, that. he was from the Red Green Show. That's the point yeah, I was trying yeah. to get across. And we love that show, yeah. funny stuff. But that episode, um, it's one of our favorites. And and did you did you get involved with that? Um, did you audition for it? Or did you know Martin Wood, who's responsible for the Stargate series? Or how did that come about for you? That came about because I think they kind of wanted to poke fun a little bit at Star Trek, and they thought, well, wouldn't it be kind of cute to actually have a guy who's <laughs> in Star Trek? Um, I can't remember whether you probably know the episode better than I do, but as I recall, I can't remember. One of us was sort of making fun of the other for being a Star Trek geek. I remember that, yep. I can't remember which one was on the receiving end of the abuse, <laughs> but... Um, but in any case, I think that's sort of one of the reasons they, they solicited me. And I knew the casting director, um, a gentleman named Paul. Uh, I'm spacing on his name. Um, I used to know him fairly well, so I think he uh, he, he he probably had had uh, thought of me after the producer said, gee, it would kind of be fun to have somebody who has some Star Trek you know, background. I was only disappointed that they didn't bring me back because I think they did bring Patrick back. They did. Yeah. 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 I always like, thought the group should what, have been What? Dead. Yeah, <laughs> come on, what? So <laughs> I, I like to think it's because I wasn't available because uh, otherwise it's like, humph. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought we actually worked very well off of each other. They, yeah. It was nice Definitely. because, you know, Enterprise, um, while I enjoyed it very much, there was no improvisation. When you had a script on Enterprise, you did it to the letter. And Stargate, they they were considerably more open to your mucking around and playing, and it was a lot of fun, consequently, to get to, uh, you know, take a little breather and actually go up and, and, you know, do a little little spoofing. And, you know, we've actually heard that. uh, I guess we can transition into into Star Trek and ask you a couple of questions about that. Well, we've, we've actually heard that about a lot of the Star Trek series, that there is no improvising. No. That the and and it's funny. I've heard a lot of actors say that, you know, the writers are excellent writers. They know you know exactly how they want it to uh, to be played. Especially on Deep Space Nine, um, a few of the we've talked to Max Grudenchek and and uh, Aaron Eisenberg, and we've also yeah. talked to Chase. She said the same thing that yeah, it was just the, the the writers knew exactly what they wanted you to say, and there was no improvising. That's that's interesting that that transitioned into uh, Enterprise as well. Well, you know, I mean. Very few TV shows are going to encourage actors to improvise. When you're shooting eight pages a day, you don't want to open Pandora's box. I mean, <laughs> That's a good once point. Once everybody sure. gets it into their head that they can kind of throw out the script, you're in trouble. Uh, having said that, I've been on a lot of shows, and there are shows where there's a little more latitude given to the actors or the director to say, hey, you know, I'm wondering about, maybe we could try this. Can we phone this in and see if... Uh, the Star Trek shows certainly were on the far end of the spectrum in terms of, you know, say it as written, period, end of story. And I think for the most part that kind of came from Rick Berman, who sure. was really the sort of paterfamilias. I mean, I don't know, stretching back to 
Next Gen or Deep Space, um, when there were other folks more or less at the helm, Ron Moore, et cetera, et cetera, um, whether or not uh, how true it was of, of other incarnations of the show, but certainly on Enterprise, it was, it was uh, you know, hit your mark, say your lines, don't mm. bump into the furniture. Um, <laughs> Which is fine, and I don't, I don't sure. mean to suggest that you know if you didn't have if you had some like you know huh question about why is my character doing this, you couldn't call up Brandon usually and say, "Can I just kind of get your thinking on it?" But you know, for the most part, I, I think the idea was that that you were not you were not really going to be encouraged to to hold up camera <laughs> for. <laughs> For, uh, for a lot of shilly shallying. Sure, and that was you know fifteen years on, fourteen years on when you guys uh, when you guys started uh, Enterprise, the the start the new incarnations of Star Trek had been going for that long, and it was kind of yeah, I'm guessing like yeah. a well oiled machine by it, that exactly, point. exactly. I think I think you know I mean I, to be honest with you, I mean I, I, there are things about the show I like quite a bit, and I have nothing but nice things to say about Rick and Brandon as people. I mean they gave me a great job, and and you know I've I've always been grateful for that. I I think if you're running something for a long long time as Rick and Brandon were. You get a little set in your ways. Sure. I think there were there were, to my mind, one of the things that I think was a little problematic was that um, e- Enterprise had, for what it was supposed to be, a sort of a darker and I thought more um, uh, contemporary version of the story. Maybe overlapping dialogue, a little grittier, a little messier. I thought it still carried more or less the same. Uh, visual signature and a lot of the same storytelling signatures as all the previous in, in, you know installations Absolutely. of the franchise had yep. and and you know to the extent that we had a great audience come for our pilot season for our pilot and then they didn't come back i think they put the message out this is going to be different and then didn't deliver on that mm. Mm. and yeah. i think that's why we saw our audience drop so precipitously, precipitously so quickly and one of the reasons we didn't last now you know i mean Obviously, for instance, opinion is very divided about the new movie. I understand, and and the new movie franchise. You know, the the risk of trying to do something new and 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 make it either more violent or more sexy or more you know battle starish or whatever is that you're going to alienate your your core audience, and right. that's yeah. that's a, that's a tricky call. But but to my mind, the enterprise didn't really quite live up to what I thought it's uh, the promise of its premise was. Yeah. So, you know, enterprise to us, we, we were in kind of in that camp too. Not that we didn't, and we do love enterprise cause we've, you know, we own the DVDs. We rewatched it. I watched it on a regular basis, just like all the other series, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it was supposed to be a lot different. And then you watch the show and it seems, you know, in, in the, the style of writing and the, the format yeah. of the writing, it is very similar, so I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the, the sense of humor was kind of the same. The right. idea that, you know, the, the, the human... The, to, to me, the biggest problem, frankly, is just that there's a certain kind of triumphalism, you know. Humans are wise and can show the way, and at the end of the day, you know, if only you can listen to us. I, I mean, this has always <laughs> been, you know, and I, I've... I, I have no axe to grind about this. I mean, I was I was very happy to be on the show, and then very happy to be part of the the history of Star Trek. But on the other hand, I'm a fairly frank person who speaks his mind. To me, the biggest problem with Star Trek, the problem I've always had, is that this this idea that somehow man is perfectible. Mm. 
you know, which I just take exception to, and I know that was sort of part of what Roddenberry's primary vision is. But to me, the original series, for all of his talk about this being the, you know, the the sunny optimism undergirding the series, I didn't really feel that to actually be that. I didn't feel the show to be as pious as all that. I thought as Star Trek developed, I thought it became overly pious. Mm. Yeah, I could see and, that too. Yeah, you know, and I, I felt there was a certain a bit of you know there was a certain amount of it was almost homily, you know, time sometimes on Star Trek, and I, I found that to be a little tedious. So your um, your first experience was with Trek was uh, the original series. Then were you a fan of the original series, or did you did you watch Star Trek before landing the role of Phlox? I was I was not a I was not an unfan. I mean, I watched the original show. I was six when it came on in '66, so mm-hmm. I saw it for the most part in reruns and syndication. But I certainly, I'm sure, I had seen almost all of the original episodes in syndication as a as a, a preteen or teenager. And I, I'd watched a few of the next gen episodes, but that came on at a time when I was traveling. I was in college. You know, I wasn't watching any television. Period. Right. So I was, I was, you know, Star Trek was certainly off my radar screen, and to the extent that I was cognizant of the fact that there were then subsequent iterations, Deep Space and Voyager, I had a, a an awareness of the franchise and the history of the franchise, and its significance certainly in cultural history. But I was not a, a fan. Mm. Um, as I say, I wasn't an unfan, but sure. I just I never watched most of. And with the exception of a few that we've talked to, most of the the folks that we've talked to on the the podcast weren't necessarily fans of uh, of Star Trek before. I mean, as an actor, it's it's obviously an interesting uh, premise for you to get into. It's a job, that kind of stuff. So it kind of makes sense. Um, and for us, it's kind of it's kind of funny. Enterprise, I would say, probably has one of the best cast chemistries. Oh yeah, totally. Of of the series, um, and we've actually we. <laughs> We uh, we had a guy that went to Dragon Con, I believe his name was Jay, for us, for mm-hmm. our, our website, and came and talked to you uh, back in 2009 when you were at Dragon Con. I think he yeah. told you that uh, that you had been voted the uh, the favorite doctor of all the series, not for our, our site, but for another one, um, which I think rings true. I think Phlox is an extremely interesting character and one of the most diverse uh because we hadn't heard of the Denobulans before that. That was the first time we'd heard of them. So it was kind of a, like a fresh start, really. Yes, no, I got this. It's, it's, it's a rare thing to be the, the uh, template for a whole new species. <laughs> when I was auditioning for it, that's what the, uh, you know, they don't give you the full script. They just give you the scene you're going to audition for sometimes, at least in this show that that was the case. So I had this scene, and the instructions were come in with a slight alien accent. It's like what? <laughs> no, <laughs> no idea. Um, I called my some of my friends who I knew were Star Trek fans, and I said, "Is there? Is there? Uh, what's a denobulan?" I said, "Oh, that's a new. That's a new species. You get the." Um, yeah, no, the, I and I enjoyed playing him too. I mean, I play a lot of a lot of coops uh, and oddballs and and perverts and serial killers and what have you and so it was nice to actually play somebody who had sort of a sunny temperament and, to, <laughs> um, and for the most part i would say a disposition probably closer to mine than almost any character i've mm. ever played um you know they're always the draggy things or wearing prosthetic makeup is no fun anyway sure. so I said, and i was the only 
character guy on an action adventure show. So there were going to be great swabs of the season, you know, episode after episode after episode, where I really didn't have much to do. Um, you know, one one accepts that as a character actor, so you sort of don't you don't lose a ton of sleep over it. But I, I would have I would have you know, in an ideal world, wanted to see them develop the character more and and figure out how to bring more dimensionality to him. Um, which, you know, but that's that's uh, that's the classic character actor's lament. You'll never talk to anybody who's a character actor and not hear that. <laughs> we always sort of want to be the captain, you know. Sure. But then the captain's workload is so hard. It's like, on the other hand. Totally. Well, you know, the makeup doesn't sound like it's all that easy either. I mean, gosh, how long did it take to get that on there? Uh, about two and a half hours oh, and then wow. an hour to take off. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, if... In those occasional episodes when I would have a lot, you know, where I'd be working every day, it it, it was it was a uh, you know it made for a long week. Usually, usually you're shooting a 12-hour day, and if you tack on two and a half hours in advance of that, an hour on top of that at the end, you're working 16 hours. Wow. wow. You know, and then you then you put a little travel time on, and really it's 17 hours. So. Uh, and that's know. that's probably the the thing you're probably asked about the most is the the makeup. I would guess I hear that a lot from. Uh, from the different actors that had to wear uh, the prosthetics. In fact, in my notes, I have insert ubiquitous makeup question here. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is usually the one you can always count on. That and what was so-and-so really like? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see like, if I've got that one. Hang on just a second. Yeah. Now, we've actually heard that a lot of the, you know, the different series, some casts are extremely serious, some are complete cut-ups. What was the atmosphere like uh, on Enterprise for you you guys in the cast? I would not have said that we were particularly, you know, we were not overly serious. Um, I have been on other shows, The Nine coming to mind, where there was such a, a sort of a, a, um, a show that I was on ABC a few years back. It was a larger cast to begin with. And there were scenes in which we were all present. It was a bank robbery show, and we were all sort of taken hostage. And and there was a, a, a sort of a constant level of hilarity that almost was exhausting. You know, it's <laughs> like everybody's making a joke. Everybody's cracking each other up. Can we please get the fucking thing shot and get home? <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm all for having a good time, but I'm also, as an actor, I really, frankly want to be always very respectful to the crew they sure. put in longer hours they make less money and the idea that you know you're holding up camera which as far as i'm concerned is sort of the cardinal sin in our business you know whatever else you don't hold up camera when they're ready to shoot you're ready to shoot so for my mind uh levity is great and i like to have fun too but but i would never have wanted to it go further than it did on our show. Mm. I think I think we had a good time, but I was happy that it wasn't it wasn't um, more raucous. Which I, I know sounds sort of counterintuitive. I mean, you kind of always want to have a happy workplace, but you know, it's one thing to have a happy workplace when it's nine to five. Right. It's another thing to have a happy workplace when the happy is actually getting in the way of the work, and you got to shoot the ten pages. I mean, you know, you're not going home until you finish the ten pages. Right. So instead of finishing at six, you're finishing at eight, but it was happier. <laughs> well, it could have been it's happier like, at home two hours ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there was, you know, there, we played, we had a lot of, we had a lot of fun. Fortunately, uh, we were, and I always 
want to make sure I say this because I had so much respect for Scott Bakula. We we were really lucky insofar as we had a guy who really understood how important it is to kind of be, if you're the lead actor, the the quarterback of the of the set. And he took his responsibilities very very seriously and did a great job. I mean, on the the, the guy I've worked with who, who reminded me the most of Scott was Mark Harmon on NCIS. Mm. Uh, Knowing everybody's name, knowing everybody's birthday, going out of his way just to be you know, warm and gracious to newcomers, guest stars, co-stars, um, really respecting and appreciating contributions of, of everybody on the crew, um, it, it sets the tone. I've been on other shows, I've been a guest on other shows where I've seen um, actors who are, I think, kind of ill-behaved. And uh, that you, it usually starts at the top. If if the lead sort of sends out signals that it's okay to pout, or it's okay to throw temper tantrums, or it's okay to be unprepared, or to shuffle in late, or to you know kind of be dismissive of the crew, then the other actors get it into their heads that that's okay for them to do too, and then the set becomes unpleasant. So I I, I always like to make sure that you know I give full props to Scott for. Uh, for creating an environment in which in which we all could function, knowing what the boundaries were. I mean, I'm I'm older than everybody except Scott, so I'd I'd been around the block a little bit. But we had a couple of people on the show who were, you know, were a little younger and were kind of coming at it, never having done a show before. And and I think it was great to have Scott be there to kind of help set the tone. Yeah, and we've heard that from uh, from a couple other folks from Enterprise. Jeffrey Combs and and Vaughn Armstrong said the same thing about Scott. So that's yeah, that's cool to hear from uh, from other folks. And actually, we've heard that in the uh, the um, DVD extras also uh, about yeah. Scott. So yeah, yeah, he's a he's a he's a terrific he's a ter- he's a real gentleman, terrific guy. Now we have, uh, of course, we talked about Starbase Indy earlier, and again, I'll I'll love to give props to those guys for hooking us up with you. Um, like I said, we were there last year. It's a fantastic show. This will be your first time at Indy, right? It will be my first time in Indiana. Oh wow! Even just the state. I got to tell yeah. you, um, coming from you know southern central Texas and also southern California, Indianapolis is cold. Very cold. So we'll dress warmly. <laughs> yes. I will dress warmly. We're going to fly through Chicago and spend a couple of days there because Bonnie's never been to Chicago. So mm. uh, awesome. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I'm preparing her. I'm, pre- I'm I've, I've been. I grew up in the East Coast. Oh, so. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah so it's, uh, I, I, uh, I know I know what I'm in for. It nearly killed us last year. That's yeah, all we I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you're only passing through, it's kind of bracing in a kind of fun way. We were in Boston a couple of years back, and uh, it's cold and snowy. I loved it. It's like ah, this is great to visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, it's great to visit. And you know, uh, it's funny uh, when we were there last year. Um, you know, a couple of the other actors that were there dressed and just you know coming from la just had like a track jacket on and you could tell they were just like <laughs> frozen to the core right just completely oh. frozen to the core now we also saw um because we're huge fans of uh vegas con we see that you're going to be there next year yes and that was actually just announced wasn't it yes it was they just they just called the other day um which is great i, I this will be my uh golly Third or fourth visit, I don't know. I'm never entirely sure exactly how they how they run it. You know, I mean, I figure they can't have the same people back year in, year out, year in, year out. So uh, I always expect to to have a few years off. But uh, but uh, I, I was actually expecting not to be asked again for a few more years. I think I was there two years ago. Yeah, actually, so, I think I'm, we yeah. saw you there. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, not not this past year, but the year before that, I right. guess. Yeah, the last one at the Hilton this year, uh, like this year and next year, will be at the Rio. It's a completely different venue. It's actually a much nicer uh, venue. Oh, it is. Oh, good. I, yeah, I hadn't even I hadn't even uh, looked at the uh, details. Yeah, it's at the Rio, which is uh, like I said, the Hilton was kind of fading. It was kind of yeah, it was getting up there, in getting years. a little long in the tooth. So yeah, the Rio is definitely a much better much better uh, venue. Um, oh, good. Where where is it? Is it on the Strip? No, it's actually off the Strip. It's across from the Palms. It's only so, slightly okay. off. Yeah, it's just barely. It's not off the strip like the Hilton. It's Hilton's not like the Hilton was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty cool. Cool. Place. We had fun this year. So. Oh, good. Yeah, definitely, and maybe we'll see you there. Totally. Do you have other conventions coming up too? Um, I think I'm. Uh, we're going on one of these cruises for the first time, which will be kind oh. of fun. I think uh, in January. Uh, I can't remember the name of the. Uh, Is it cruise trek? Oh gosh, I don't want to say because what if it's the, what if it's not? What if it's not? Right, what if it's the competing star? We'll have to look to, it up to plug the wrong cruise. <laughs> we'll put that um, in the show notes. So okay, yeah, it's, take, it's it's in January. I think it's January seventh through fifteen. It leaves out of Fort Lauderdale, and I think it goes to the Bahamas. And I have a feeling it goes to the Panama Canal. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to that. But I don't I don't have a convention agent, so I'm never I'm I don't actually. Actively solicit convention work. I'm I'm happy to do them if somebody calls, mm-hmm. but um, you know I've been fortunate in so far as I'm able to work fairly consistently still in the, in, in the business, and my wife is working consistently, mm-hmm. and we we are because we came out of the theater, you know we're we're sort of inherently we were frugal. Sure. So I don't really, you know, I don't, I, I, I certainly get the idea that people can do conventions week in, week out, week in, week out, week in, week out, and, and make some decent money, and that's that's great. But um, I, I, I don't want to do them past the point where I enjoy them. Yeah, that's understandable. You know, if you're on the road that much, it's just it's just a tiring thing, you know. And, and a convention, it's, I, I, I have a lot of fun there, but it's also, it's like being at a party, you know, nonstop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and you know you know at the end of like a three day party you're kind of beat. Yeah, definitely. So, Especially so Vegas, doing, yeah. yeah. So doing a ton of them, it just is you know at my at my age, <laughs> it's uh, it's just not feasible. So I maybe do two, three, four a year max. I would say we usually try and if we're going to do one, say in the summer, we try and do one where you know it's like ooh Paris. Well, always go to the Star Trek and Paris convention. Definitely, it's like one in Hawaii, right? I mean, you can't pass that up. Yeah, <laughs> we've been to Australia and New Zealand. I mean, that wow. has definitely been one of the great perks of of such a you know. I mean, coming out of the theater. I mean, one, I thought I would never have a pot to piss in. I thought I'd just do theater my whole <laughs> life, and there's no money in theater. So moving into film and TV, I thought, well, oh, maybe I'll make a little money to get a couple of series and to end up having success and my wife has done well. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I, I pinch myself all the time, but particularly to then have this, this ancillary set of opportunities, you know, the idea that somebody's going to pay me to travel around the world and I can tack <laughs> on a week or so and come back with money in my pocket. I just sure. had a vacation and I made money doing it. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's awesome. That's yeah. fantastic. And yeah, again, we really appreciate you joining us. Oh, yeah, we can't totally. say okay. thank you enough. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. We always end the, the episodes uh, with a kind of a, a question that you may or may not have heard. We thought that it was something that that Everybody everyone has. heard, but uh, the consensus is that it isn't. Um, and you not being a, a necessarily a Star Trek fan before, 
Uh, I don't know. You'll probably answer with with one of your own. But what was your favorite uh, episode of Star Trek? Uh, the show I was on, or sure, the entire it could be, franchise? It could be anything you want. Um, I will say that on the show I was in, my favorite episode was, I think, was it called Similitude? It was the one where Trip was cloned. Ah, yes. Oh, That's that a good great, one. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, I thought that was what, to me, what, what Star Trek does best is tell a story that has some some some, some sociological dimension to it but is first and foremost about the human interaction amongst everybody on the crew. It got everybody involved. Everybody had something to do. It was touching. It was moving. Um, and it, 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 it kind of was about something. And I, I, I thought that was, that was by far, to me, the most successful episode we did. I, I think Manny Cota coming on board in the last couple of seasons really lifted you know, lifted us a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. If he'd been there, if he'd been there from the beginning, and I say this with all due deference to Rick and Brandon. I mean, they've been doing the heavy lifting on that series for years and years and years, and they wanted to have a year off in between the end of Voyager and the beginning of Enterprise, and Paramount wouldn't give it to them. Mm. So Paramount rushed them and rushed Enterprise into production, and I, 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 I feel sometimes that the fans don't appreciate when they, I think sometimes are a little excessively harsh about Rick and Brandon um, that. They knew they needed more time to develop Enterprise. They knew that they didn't have the Bible in place, and they didn't really have a, a clear path for where we were going to go. It was Paramount's decision. And Paramount, in essence, saying, we don't care. Figure it out as you go along. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that was very short-sighted. Paramount, in essence, I think they kind of killed their own golden goose. Right. A little bit. And in terms of... The, oh, because I, I, I never really I, I saw one episode of Voyager and one episode of Deep Space Nine when I got the gig just to kind of familiarize myself a little bit. But I, I'm afraid I've never gone back and seen you know the whole canon. Yeah. So I'd have to go back to the original series, and I think my favorite or the one that I always kind of remember fondly is the one where they go to some planet where where spores puff puff in your face and right, you right. You're, you become blissful <laughs> and Spock right. falls in love with the blonde girl yep. and he swings from the tree <laughs> and I remember the Spock falls in love music <laughs> which I always used to supply the words to Spock could be happy too <laughs> so one of the things I think that was made the original series so great, which is not often mentioned, is I think it had some of the best incidental music Oh yeah, in the history of television. Best fight music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just good. <laughs> and then it had the little whimsical, like, Right, yeah. Yeah, it was great. That I mean, was. the music absolutely. was fucking great. <laughs> it's just something that we don't really even have very much on television anymore. No, I know, yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, anyway. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. And it's kind of, I've been waiting for someone to say The Way to Eden. That's the one with the space hippies. But that's the, the one <laughs> you gave. Gonna, no, nobody's no, ever going to say Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> now, that was, that was uh, season three with a little jump in the shark. It was what yeah. it was called yeah. a few times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's when they had their budgets cut. And, and also, of course, like, you know, that classic episode when they go back to, you know, Chicago and right, and, right. and Kirk falls in love with Joan Collins. What was that one? That was the Harlan Ellison. That was uh, City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of Forever, yes. Yeah. That he, he, I remember reading an essay about about that. Harlan Ellison was outraged that they had, had violated his script. Yeah, and I think they actually just settled that recently. 
Oh, really? I, I believe Harlan finally got his due, so I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> pretty sure they just celebrated. Yeah, you, you don't want to get on the wrong side of Harlan Ellison. Yeah. yeah. We've seen some, yeah. uh, some, some video on YouTube of him on the uh, Tomorrow Show with, uh, gosh, what was his name back in the 70s? Uh, I'm totally blanking here. Uh, anyway, it was him and D. Kelly and, and uh, Jimmy Doohan and Walter Koenig. And uh, Jimmy Doohan, you know, Jimmy Doohan was... He was no guy to mess around with. That's all I got to yeah. say. And at one point, it looked like he and Harlan were going to put each other in headlocks. But <laughs> oh, really? I digress, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to bring it full circle, though, the way to Eden, um, Deborah Downey, who's also going to be at Starbase Indy, she's going to be there, too. So. Oh, she was She she was one of the uh, the hippie children? She was. <laughs> she was, indeed. How about that? Yep. So. About that? But again, thank you so much yes, for joining us. You. It's been an absolute oh, pleasure. pleasure talking to you. Uh, Anytime. And hopefully we'll see you soon. I look forward to it. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks again. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that was episode fifteen of Subspace Communiques Life After Trek. Uh, John Billingsley, guys, we, how could you go wrong with that? Dr. Flox, I mean, come on. Way it was cool. a super great interview. Uh, really gracious. A lot of really cool inside Hollywood stuff, which I really enjoyed. Loved it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that we don't love listening to uh, to stars talk about their time on Star Trek, but getting to hear that kind of stuff um, for me is is just as exciting. So kudos to John for, for going kind of down a couple of rabbit trails that we found super interesting. Totally interesting, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we got a couple other podcasts that we think you guys should listen to. Uh, Sci-Fi Diner Podcasts, our friends Scott and Miles put on a fantastic show. Uh, recently, they had John Delancey and Gary Lockwood. And you can check them out at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast.com. Another podcast that we love, of course, is Geek Fights. Damon and everybody at geekfights.net, you can check them out. So if you haven't been to our website before, that's subspacecommunicate.com. Uh, we serve Trek culture daily. That's our tagline, so be sure to go over there and check it out. You can also check us out at facebook.com slash subspacecoms, twitter.com slash subspacecoms. We also do the Flickr thing in YouTube. You can see some of our pictures from conventions and videos from conventions. You can get those directly from our homepage. Uh, but we had a blast tonight again. Thanks to John. Thanks to the folks at Starbase Indy. And hopefully we'll be bringing another episode of Life After Trek to you guys very soon. But until then, live long and prosper. <laughs>